This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Neil Gifford. He brings back birds and butterflies from the brink of extinction. Gifford is the conservation director for the Albany Pine Bush Preserve. He got his first job at the preserve literally setting fires, controlled burns. He understands that fires are essential to enriching the ecosystem of a pitch pine barren. He also understands that humans have a responsibility to strike a balance between their own needs and nature's needs. Well, I do remember that's one bird call every child used to know because it said its name, right? Yes, Whipper exactly. Whipper will. Whipper yes, and they will. won't stop saying it. They won't stop saying it once they start singing. But uh, it used to be a real common nighttime song, and uh, the skies had gone silent over the pine bush with it. But uh, they are they are back, and we we think they're back because of the habitat management work that we've done in the preserve. That's great to hear because I I have fond childhood memories uh, growing up on the edge of the pine bush back when it was considered a wasteland. So if you could just tell us a little about um, the evolution of preserving the pine bush, I'd, I'd like it sure. if you could look backwards yes. at how, I mean, and again, in my childhood, people just considered it. Not yes, worth saving, and then even forward. The what? Yep, even the, even the field guides for plants and birds. You know, there are. If you read the old field guides, they would talk about you know a plant, a common plant of waste places, and that would be something like you know blueberry or sweet fern. But um, the so the Albany Pine Bush Preserve itself was initiated um, really in 1988 when the New York State Legislature and the governor created the the law that created the preserve and the commission. But before that, you know, the pine bush historically covered at least 25 to 50,000 acres. And as a result of, you know, creating the throughway and other roads and various, you know, various development, the size of the, the size of the, of the pine bush landscape shrank to a point where people were concerned about it. Um, in the 70s, um, scientists started realizing that it supported a pretty rare ecosystem, the inland pitch pine scrub oak barrens, and that the barrens hosted a number of rare plants and animals. And it was in the se- in the early 80s when, well, mid 80s, when Crosscase Mall was going in and the landfill, the, oh, the big municipal landfill was expanding, that... Um, a local, a local um, grassroots group called Save the Pine Bush became active in trying to raise awareness for protecting the landscape and protecting some of the rare species here and the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy is an international, global, not, not-for-profit conservation organization. And the Nature Conservancy got involved in helping um, protect land in this landscape. And ultimately, the law was, uh, the law was created in 1988 to create the preserve and to create the Albany Pine Bush Preserve Commission that I work for. So it was really a result of the combined 
realization of both the loss of this of this rare landscape and the need to protect it if it's going to persist. And right now you have about 3,400 acres that are protected. Is that right? Correct. Yep. So we're still working on building the preserve. It's not done yet. Um, ideally, the preserve would be around 5,300 acres. Why, why is that ideal? So basically, it's the, it's the amount of open space that's left that could support pitch pine scrub oak barrens. So the preserve is kind of sandwiched between the city of Albany and the city of Schenectady. And the, the New York State Thruway, Interstate 90, cuts it in half, kind of on a north-south basis. And within that, there are about 6,000 acres of open space left. And of, of, of that 6,000 acres, right, 3,400 of it has been protected as part of the preserve. And there's an additional couple, couple thousand acres that could support, that, that does support remnant pitch pine scrub oak barrens, and that could be restored to pitch pine scrub oak barrens. So our, ma our management plan calls for trying to add as much of that remaining unprotected open space as possible to the preserve. And ultimately we would end up with a preserve that's a little around 5,300 acres in size. And this management plan, does it have a timeline that goes with it? Is there a, a set goal? Yes, it, yes and no. So we, the, the commission and its partners only work with willing sellers to add land to the preserve. And we can only pay fair market value. So there's a timeline associated with the management plan, and that gets reviewed every uh, and potentially updated every five years. But you know, that that protection plan to build a preserve that's over five thousand acres is a is a long term plan, and we're continually working with private property owners and municipal and the municip three municipalities that make up the commission. Um, to add land to the preserve as, as it becomes available and, um, for, for purchase and, or protection. Well, 5,000 acres used to sound like a lot, but when you said it used to be 25,000 yes. to 50,000, I can see you're kind of working against time to quickly collect and protect what's left of it. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And that's, yes. And that's because the, the pine bush is a number of things. So, of course, it supports the world's best remaining example of an inland pitch pine scrub oak barrens, which is kind of this open savanna habitat dominated by pitch pine. And the understory is this, it's either a grassy shrubland or a shrubby grassland, but it supports an amazingly rich diversity of, of rare plants and animals. Plants and animals that are rare generically, but many of those are abundant here. So it's a really important habitat because it supports large populations of some of those really rare species. Now, including, for example, the endangered corner blue butterfly. The corner blue is still endangered, but in the preserve, we have at least 10 to 15,000 corner blue butterflies a year now for the last nine years. Well, in my last conversation with you, I was just intrigued because, of course, the Altamont Enterprise has been writing about the Carter Blue for decades. And it mm -hmm. wasn't until this conversation um, that I understood it as a canary in the coal mine. We were oh, yeah. talking about um, the southern pine beetle. And when I had gotten the release from the DEC, it mm -hmm. sounded so alarmist. Um, and when I talked to you, you made this very important distinction between um, invasive species and native species like the southern pine beetle. And you said, really, the more important thing is it shows the decline in the environment and that that's right. 
that's what the Carner Blue lesson was. Yes. So does, should we now have hope that you've got 10 to 15,000 of these butterflies that were down to what? Just hundreds, right? Yeah, we only had a few hundred. When I started here, I was a seasonal butterfly technician, a conservation science technician in, in 94. And we only had a few hundred Carners in the entire preserve that we knew of. So, and the, the federal minimum, so the federal recovery there, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a federal recovery team. I'm a member of that team. And we drafted a federal recovery plan. So range wide across the Carners range, there's a plan to get that species off the endangered species list. There are t about 25 sites where, where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and its partners in, in the various states across the Northeast and the upper Midwest are working to recover fully functional carnivore butterfly populations. But currently we are now one of only four of those that has a fully functional population of butterflies, but ev everywhere the carnivore was endangered, it was very much a canary in the coal mine and a symptom of a much bigger problem with ecosystem health. And that was the analogy that, 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 we, that we discussed previously with the Southern pine beetle. So the Carner blue butterfly, it's when the ecosystem was healthy, the, it was able to support tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Carner blue butterflies. It, it, ecosystem health declined to the point where it was only able to support a couple hundred as we've been managing the preserve, building and managing the preserve we've been able to grow that, improve the habitat, improve ecosystem health, and as a, and as a result, improve the size of the carnivore butterfly population. And Melissa, an important point with, with that estimate with carners, that 10,000, I'm, I'm thinking an average, that 10,000 only is for the, the small area of occupied habitat that we survey. We survey about 150 acres of Carner habitat in the preserve, but there are 700 acres of Carner habitat in the preserve. So we are only we are only talking about the number of butterflies that we know we have in the areas we survey. The actual number of Carner blues in the preserve is much higher than that. But we, we exceeded the 3000 butterfly minimum that the US Fish and Wildlife Service had set uh, back in 20, um, I believe 2014. So what specifically did you do to yep. the environment in order to cause this species to re <laughs> regrow we, itself? Yep. We did a number of things to try and improve ecosystem health. And ultimately, all of them were geared around trying to make the system more, try, trying to help restore what we call restoring the altered fire regime. Pitch pine scrub oak barrens are a fire dependent and fire adapted ecosystem, but fire had been kept out for decades. And as a result of that, you know, we had overabundant native species, including scrub oak, right? You think hard to believe you could have too much scrub oak in a pitch pine scrub oak barrens, um, overabundant white pine, um, and a lot of invasive species in particular, um, black locust, which is a, a tree from the Southern United States. So we, went about removing the invasive species, um, doing some mowing and some some tree cutting work to re to restore the historical open savanna like structure of the of the landscape. As we did that, we collected native we collected seeds of native plants, especially the grasses and wildflowers, including wild blue lupin, which is the only plant that the carnivore butterfly caterpillar feeds on. And, that, and the carnivore is one example. There are dozens of species here that feed only on one or two plants. And then ultimately plant, 
established plant, planted more of those plants in the landscape and then set about uh, managing them with fire. So we've actually, as a result of all of that, we've been able to grow, literally grow more habitat for carners. And historically that habitat was part of the, an integral part of healthy pitch pine scrub oak barrens. So today, instead of having isolated little pockets of native grasses and wildflowers, including wild blue lupin. Today, those grasses and wildflowers are interspersed across over around 700 acres of high quality pitch pine scrub oak barrens. So in a way, restoring carnar habitat and being able to get recover the carnivore butterfly population here is a story about restoring ecosystem health. Yes, I guess as a society, we used to take the natural world for granted. And now you have to work so hard, not just to yeah. protect it, but to recreate it. Um, and, and restore it. And that's the big, yeah. the, that, and that's why I talked about fire, because ultimately ecosystems are really driven by natural processes. And the best example of that that people may be most familiar, familiar with is hydrology and wetlands. So wetlands are ecosystems that are dominated by the ebb and flow of water and all that water does in carrying nutrients in and out, creating an environment for, for, for plants and those plants and create an environment for animals. And in many cases, those a particular wetland is a specialized type of habitat that has unique plants in it that support um, special, you know, particular species of wildlife. In the case of pine barrens, it's fire that's doing that. Fire is that what recurring wildland fire is that is that dynamic ecosystem process. So I like to I like to describe ecosystem restoration as a process, not an event. It's not like that we just need to do kind of the gardening, the gardening work of removing the weeds and planting what we want. But really it's about restoring the the, the natural processes that help to maintain that ecosystem in the long term. And fire does a a wide variety of things that no other tool in these ecosystems can do. In particular, recycling nutrients in a way that benefits the rare plants. Fire recycles nutrients. How does yep. that work? You can think of, of wildland fire almost like instant decomposition. It's the same kind of thing generally that's happening in a compost pile in that organic matter is being, de is, is being decomposed and then those nutrients, when they're mixed with water in particular, become soluble and available for plants. Fire does that almost instantly. The only thing that differs between fire and decomposition is the rate at which heat is generated and nutrients are recycled and water and water is, 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 is um, released. So fire, fire is, is taking nitrogen in particular, but also phosphorus, calcium, um, potassium, and those and taking those nutrients and releasing them into the soil and making them available for plant uptake. And that's incredibly important in pine barrens because they're veritable deserts. The thing that separates the Albany pine bush from the other, you know, 15 or so pine barrens in the Northeast is that ours sits on this massive field of, of sand dunes. If you remove the vegetation in the pine bush, it would look just like the Sahara desert. All these little roly-poly hills in the in the Albany pine bush are actually sand dunes deposited by wind after the last glacier receded. So it's you're right. Nobody wants to garden in sand. It doesn't hold water. It doesn't hold nutrients. So what fire does is it's constantly recycling those nutrients every few years and giving the the plants a kind of a shot in the arm of nutrients. It's not so much that these plants can't grow in more and more enriched, better, fertile soils. It's that they're quickly outcompeted. The plants here in the pine bush 
are especially adapted to growing in you know dry droughty nutrient poor sand and fire periodically helps rejuvenate those nutrients and give them just a little edge that they need to continue Interesting. Just fascinating. But so these 15 other um, barrens in the Northeast are not on sand. They're on some other kind of soil. And you um, mentioned early on that worldwide, the pine bush barrens is one of the best. Could you just kind of give us a thumbnail of what else is out there in the world and what makes the pine bush the best? So there are fewer than 20 um, pine barrens and the, the, they're a northeastern phenomenon. Many of them do grow on sand, but they're growing on flat sand deltas of from, again, from previous um, glacial bouts where um, anyway, they, they, they grow on sand or they're growing in on rocky outcrops. So in the Shangam Mountains, there's pitch pine scrub oak barrens on top of the ridge, but there it's, you know, there's almost no soil. Um, the big examples, the biggest example is the New Jersey pine lands. That's a coastal pine barrens. The Long Island central pine barrens is another, another example of a coastal barrens. And then you have these islands of about 15 others dotted across the Northeast, also on glacial sand deposits, but they're all relatively shallow and relatively flat. And that's what separates the, the Albany pine bush from all the rest is that it sits on the largest field of, of sand dunes east of the Rockies that's not on the coast. It's one of the th- one of the things that helped us get the National Natural Landmark designation in 2016. Because you're inland and right. you're So the yep and the plant species the plants the dominant plant species in these barrens are somewhat similar. They're mostly pitch pine, huckleberry and blueberry and some scrub oak and then each of them have their own unique kind of spin on on on, on other plants but they're and- they're, they're they're similar. And do you work with other conservation directors, you know, people that are parallel to your role at these other? Uh, yes. And that must be interesting, kind of yeah. so sharing. There's the cent- yep. Yep. So the, 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 um, in Long Island, there's the Central Pine Barrens Commission. They're doing similar work now. The Nature Conservancy has some preserves in Maine and New Hampshire. Um, we work with the, new, the the Massachusetts Natural Heritage Program. There's a really nice inland pitch pine scrub oak barrens in um, Montague in western Massachusetts. So we it's a small it's a small community. Yeah, and a very uh, specialized community. I'd like to talk a little about you. You mentioned it was 1994 when you came to the Pine Bush as a butterfly technician. Is that what you said? And yes, that if was you my could second just job here. Kind of walk us through the 25 years of what you know. Oh my. What you, maybe go back further? Let's start back further. Sure. Where Where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from the northern edge of Johnstown, New York. Okay. So up near Caroga Lake. And just tell us a little about and, your childhood. Were you somebody okay. that was attuned to nature growing up or how, <laughs> always, how did that yes. work? Yeah, I was always distracted by nature when I was supposed to be doing other things. So, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so we grew up on a, on a, on a chunk of property at, um, outside, out, about seven miles outside of, the, outside of town, outside of the city. And, uh, yeah, I was always enthralled with, with nature and bird feeders and, you know, the outdoors. Like so many, so many people now that are working conservation, the outdoors was our playground. So, you know. Back in the day, your parents would be like, you know, go play. And I don't want to see you until dinner, you know, right after lunch. And we'd be out in the woods all day, you know, playing and exploring and watching for me, watching wildlife. And I, there were some rocky patches with with pines and blueberries. And, you know, they smelled in the sun. You could smell the pine needles and that that. Yeah. So. 
Yep. And then as a result of, uh, of that, I was lucky enough to be accepted to go to Paul Smith's College after high school. In the Adirondacks. Yep. It was still a two-year school then, but they, they had me sold with their 14,000-acre campus in the middle of the Adirondacks on a lake. So yeah. I, I, I worked there and got my earned my associates in applied science and then transferred to SUNY Plattsburgh, where I uh, finished off my bachelor's degree in environmental science and ecology. And then I was invited to stay on there as a Fitzpatrick fellow to study. There's a Jack Pine Barrens near the Canadian border in northern Clinton County, north of Plattsburgh. So I studied the bird community in that fire dependent Jack Pine Barrens. And from there... Um, once I received my master's degree, I worked seasonally here initially on a prescribed burn crew, on a prescribed fire crew. And oh, wow. I'm going to have to have you take a little side trip on that. Yep. What is okay. that like? Um, being that was phenomenal. So basically, I was working on a prescribed fire crew, helping to prepare management units here in the Albany Pine Bush, prepping fire breaks, and then working the prescribed fires, helping ignite them and keep them in the inside the management units and and learning more about prescribed fire at the time that was at that point it was only an eight week an eight week spring uh, prescribed burn window today we burn almost year round so this really important tool that you've talked about is something that you know hands on yes so a lot of my graduate studies were studying fire ecology and the ecology of pine barrens and i've always been enthralled with birds so field ornithology and understanding the what what the understanding what the wildlife can tell us about ecosystem health in particular in ecosystems that depend on disturbance and frequent disturbance like pine barrens has always been something that interested me disturbance ecology is completely fascinating and we we think of disturbance in wildlands as being kind of the exception to the norm but in reality Disturbance is something that happens frequently, and in some places like Pine Barrens, recurring fire, plants and animals have adapted to not only deal with it, but actually depend on it to complete their life cycles. And up there, the jack pine, like here, it's the heat of a fire that opens the pine cone to release the seeds, while simultaneously the fire is preparing an appropriate seed bed, removing competing vegetation, and fertilizing the soil. It's fire ecology is fascinating. Isn't that? So, yeah. so um, now I'm putting you back on your career track. You started yeah. out with this um, working hands-on with the fires, and what happened next? So it was fire and birds. So I worked a seasonal crew here with fire, and then I ended up going to Maine for a summer, working with birds in, um, in north-central Maine. And then I came back and volunteered here for the summer before I went. I spent uh, eight weeks in the, that fall in Missouri on an itinerant burn crew. So we, uh, for the Nature Conservancy, there were six of us and we would camp at various Nature Conservancy preserves around the state, prepping them, burning them, making sure they were out and then rinse and repeat and go to the next nature preserve, prep prep some, some management units at that site and burn those. So it was a phenomenal fall of burning in huge prairies and oak savannas and in the Mark Twain National, um, National Forest. And then when I came back from that, from from that um, seasonal burn crew job, I worked for um, Audubon International for a year as an ecologist before the ecologist position opened up here. So in 1997, I guess it was 96. I got married in 97. In 96. <laughs> got to uh, get uh, your important dates yes, right. Yes. In 96, I started working here full time as the preserve ecologist. And then eventually the conservation director position opened up. So initially it was just me. I was the only science person on staff. 
uh, monitoring carnivore butterflies and developing the, the management plans to try and recover that butterfly here. So I helped write the, the recovery plan in the pine bush to try and, you know, how are, how are we going to try and build a, a functional population of carnivore blues here? And been here ever since. So a lot, now I supervise the two, two, our two scientists and our fire manager um, do, a, do a fair amount of bird research myself. And the other hat I wear is the director of project review as the conservation director. So the preserve is 3,400 acres in size, but any new development that's proposed around the preserve, those applications come to us and I get to review those with our technical committee and then interface with the municipal planning agencies to try and help them understand what the potential impacts are on the commission's ability to create and manage the preserve and work with the, municip the municipal planning agencies and the applicants to try and develop ways of minimizing and mitigating and avoiding those impacts and hopefully striking a balance between economic development and um, cons conservation in the pine bush. So wow. it's, a, it's a, I love my I've been like 25 years and it's, it's so diverse and varied. And I work with this incredible team of people that are all dedicated to this place the environment, the education staff, the stewardship staff, the science staff. It is, this has been a, a, a dream job come true for me. Well, I was going to ask you what a typical day was like, but I can see just from <laughs> the many hats you wear, there is no yeah. typical day. Um, wow. So we're, our time is running so fast. You mentioned you're still doing <laughs> bird research, and I yes. just feel like... You've got so many passions, but tell us a little about that. What is what is it you're researching currently? So we're looking at um, the distribution and abundance of breeding season birds, and in particular, in a section of high quality pine barrens on Kings Road, we do bird banding. So we have listening stations across the, the preserve and we can identify birds by ear. So we can from that figure out what species we have in the preserve and how many. And then the bird banding allows us to look at the specific population dynamics of, by having birds in the hand in one, one spot over time. And we're recapturing a lot of birds, so we band birds. So we catch the birds, put a metal bracelet that we get from the USGS on their legs, and we're able to look at the ratio, the relationship of males to females, young birds to old birds, because we can age them, and look at survival from one year to the next, and really get a really nice window on ecosystem health. We're humans, right? I don't live in this system. We're, um, none of us inherited super high quality barrens to manage. So we rely on the rare wildlife that really depends on this, that specialized on this ecosystem, like for example, the prairie warbler. And by looking at their the distribution and abundance of those species and their demographics, are they successful, successfully reproducing? Are they living a long time? That's the best window we have into truly understanding ecosystem function and ecosystem health. I'm a person, I live in a house. The wildlife lives here 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the breeding season or year round in the case of some birds. So the birds are a great window in helping us understand the effects of our management. If we're managing the, the, the preserve effectively, we should see the distribution and abundance of those specialized animals going up. And that's actually what we're seeing. Um, and in the case of the prairie warbler, we have you know several hundred pair of those birds now breeding in the preserve. And as we were talking earlier about the whippoorwill, the whippoorwill is a bird that was gone from this landscape for 30 years. 
And we're pretty sure that it's back here now as a result of the management we've been doing for the last for the last 30 to rebuild a, um, a healthy ecosystem that they could live in. Well, we've ended at the place we began, and we're much richer for it. But do you have any closing thoughts? It seems to me you are doing this job at such a critical juncture in our world's health, you know, with a UN report on the declining species. And I mean, do you ever get discouraged because it's just such a huge uphill battle? You mentioned this needing to balance economic development with conservation. And I guess the reality is there's going to be economic development, but here you are trying to carve out this sacred space. And that's that's the beauty of this, of the Albany pine bush and the work we're doing to show that it's successful even for a globally imperiled ecological community with a whole bunch of rare species. If, if we can do this here in Albany, we're using prescribed fire, you know, in an urban landscape to manage a globally rare ecosystem and show that it's working. And that it's an example. If we can, I like to say, if we can do it here, you can do it pretty much anywhere. And increasingly as the human population grows, not just here in New York state, but across the country and around the world, Striking this balance is going to become so much more important because we have less and less open space left. So managing, keep keeping open space and managing it appropriately so that we can effectively coexist with the natural world. And it is ultimately the natural world that protect gives provides our ability to live on the planet. We got to have both. You can't just have economic development. You also have to have conservation and in, in human dominated landscapes and a human dominated world. Increasingly, it's on it's our responsibility to do that work, and so I think the pine bush is an inspiration, quite honestly, and and, a, and an example of how to how to try and strike that balance, especially in the places with that where lots of people live.